Here it is. That hasn't come on, but it should. We'll see. It says that we're live, so I'm just going to go with it. That, that should come on. Okay, let's see here. We're going to go to Psalm. We got no gym today, so I'll read this. We're going to read Psalm 153, 119, 153, and this is the letter Resh. Consider my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Greater your tender mercies, O Lord, revive me according to your judgments. Many are my persecutors and my enemies, yet I do not turn from your testimonies. I see the treacherous and am disgusted, because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The entirety of the entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Good stuff. Now, we have lots of prayer requests again today. We got Sergio is in Israel, and he's got a terrible flu. He's been 103.5 for a couple days, and he's a little better today, but he's still just in really bad shape. And so it's Dr. Bridges. He's got Mabel is better. Dr. Bridges is really struggling with this, just like Sergio. Sounds like they're at the exact same point and they're, uh, they're being sick right now. And then we have Irene is going through some very rough trials, and uh, her ex-fiance is now addicted to meth, and so she's asking for prayers both for herself and for him. And Nancy is having heart problems, and they're not sure what is needed, but it may include a valve oblation. I don't know what that means, but it's not good, I'm sure. And uh, she's a mother with two children. Joyce asked for her husband, who is paranoid about many things and needs to yield to Christ and find his love. And uh, she also has said that God has answered our prayers. We've been praying for her. She's the one with the sweet shop out in uh, Idaho. And um, her, their finances are met. The chocolate shop and the B&B are both meeting their needs, which was something that they were very stressed about a month and a half ago. But the Lord has delivered them in that. So she wants to give a praise as well. And then uh, Carrie had an operation in Orlando. We prayed for her just a while ago. She's here at Sarasota Memorial and had cancer, and she went up for an operation. She had her operation, I think it was yesterday. And uh, she hopes to be in Sarasota by Saturday. And she sends thanks to everybody that prayed for her. And then Mark in Colorado, his sh shoulder is very bad. He was doing some heavy lifting and hurt it, and it's continuing to not get better. And uh, Becky, Mark's wife, continues with several really difficult emotional and physical problems, and she's asking for more prayer as well. So uh, I'm going to keep these people in prayer. And I have, I, have you heard from Freda? No, I meant to email her today and I just haven't had time so I, I need to check her out yes you gotta Could you add my brother Dale, to the prayer Dale his back again or oh boy Dale okay we'll add Dale into our prayers as well who's having a six spine operation so you know that's one thing once you had one you you almost can't get through you know if they don't get it right the first time you can just continue on down that path for Poor Dale. You tell him. You send him my, my heart there. I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, I got something. Uh, Scott, he wrote us a poem once before, and it was really wonderful. And uh, Scott has some personal family problems that happened last year that have just been debilitating for him and his whole family. And 
He's staying close to the word, and that's the only thing that is keeping him strong. It's just, I don't know how people can get away from the Bible when they're going through tough times, because that's when you should get closest to it. But he wrote this, and I just thought it was pretty wonderful. There's something every pilot knows, and Charlie can attest. Now, just so you know, I said at one time or another that I had gone for my private pilot's license in Japan, and I aced it, and uh, I took my solo flight, and then I said, I'm done. I'm, I don't want to be a pilot. It's not my thing. But th he threw this in as a life's lesson. We have to go through stressful things if we are to be our best. The stalls that we perform in that plane can be quite scary. Those crosswind landings that we do sometimes get pretty hairy. Prepping for the written test can turn your brain to goo. My preacher scored 100, but I got 92. I'm not surprised that Charlie aced that written in such fashion. The things he sets his mind to do it with a passion. Thank you. I don't know if I agree with that, but thank you. Among the things we train for is flying without sight. Our senses tell us something's wrong and nothing feels quite right. We have to put our faith in the gauges on our dash. Trusting in the things we feel will guarantee a crash. This life is like an airplane. We must complete this flight. At times we're flying blind when the clouds turn dark as night. We have a gauge that we can trust to land this albatross. The Bible is our gauge and our landing strip, the cross. Uh, I very much appreciate that because people don't seem to understand what he gets. Is that when you're in trials, you don't move away from the Lord. You don't blame the Lord. You come close to the Lord and you stick to his word. So there you go with that. Heavenly Father, we certainly pray for all the people that we mentioned and others that are also struggling. We know that uh, Darla, she's been out for just months with teeth problems and We'll add her in right now as well. And uh, Lord, there are people that uh, send me prayer requests and prayer lists and people on them. And sometimes I'm not allowed to mention who they are, but you know them, Lord. You also know my friend Mike, who's got some surgeries coming up, and we would lift him up as well. And the list goes on, Lord. You know every one of the people that is dealing with some issue that needs to be uh, tended to. And so please be with your, your people and let them know that you are there with them in a, a really relevant way so that they can feel your touch upon them. And Lord, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your word. And we thank you above all for what you did when you entered into the stream of humanity and united with human flesh and, and took the pains and the burdens that we also bear. And uh, you took them on yourself. And so you can empathize with us as a merciful and empathetic high priest. And we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, and we commit this service to you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we are going to finish 2 Corinthians chapter 3 today. We didn't quite get it done last week. Um, uh, let's see here. I can't pick on my mom when she walks in late today because she's not walking in late. She's going to be in, uh, she's got something important to do. Uh, mayor from Atlanta, a guy that was, he's here in Sarasota talking tonight, and apparently he's a pretty wonderful guy. And he's, she said, I can't believe how old this guy is. She's 81. And, you know, she's older than he is, so she's making a joke, obviously, but uh, she, I don't know, he's visiting and she had a desire to see him, so I'll hear all about that in a day or so. Anyway, we're in uh, 3 Corinthians, verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So in verse 16, Paul said that when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. 
as a word to those who are in Christ, he shows that this is already true. For there is no veil, but we all with unveiled face, he says. Instead of a veil, we are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. It seems rather difficult to see to scholars exactly how to translate this. Some say, contemplate the Lord's glory, can see and reflect the glory, beholding as in a glass the glory, reflecting like bright, bright mirrors the glory, and so on. Different scholars read it, and uh, the words are just not easy to translate. However, the Bible should always be interpreted with the Bible. In doing so, the difficulty will clear up. The word for beholding here is katotritzo, or yes, katotritzo. It means beholding as in a mirror. It is used only this once in the New Testament, and therefore Paul has a specific intent on choosing this word instead of a word comparable to, say, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. By going back to the account of Moses, we can determine what the intent is. In Exodus chapter 33, we read this exchange between Moses and the Lord. Let me take you back there. Burke, was that the chapter you were having me look at earlier? Yes, Isn't that odd? Isn't, that's just bizarre that you uh, bring that up, and here we are back in that same chapter. In uh, Exodus 13, 33, it says in verse 18, and he said, please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. In this, we are told that man cannot see the face of the Lord and live. However, in Jesus, we are told that he is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. That's Hebrews 1 verse 3. Putting the thoughts together then, Paul has been contrasting the law of Moses with the new covenant. Therefore, he is saying that when we see the gospel message, we are as if looking into a mirror, which reflects the glory of God. In Christ, we behold his glory. We cannot say we are looking directly at the Lord because he's not present with us at this time. Therefore, it is the truth of Christ that we are beholding in the message of Christ. Therefore, the translation of the New King James Version is correct. At this time, we are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Each time we contemplate the gospel, or now because it is written, search out the New Testament scriptures, and in the searching out of Christ in this way, Paul says that we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Just as Moses' face reflected the glory of the Lord when he came before the Israelites, so we are being transformed. It's not a physical transformation, but a spiritual one. As we conform to the prescriptions of the New Testament, and as we follow as disciples of Christ, we are being spiritually transformed into that same image. The image of Christ, thus from glory to glory, as Paul says. We behold the glory, and it transforms us into that glory. Paul finishes this thought and the chapter with the words, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. It is the Spirit who calls, it is the Spirit who seals, and it is the Spirit who sanctifies. As we pursue Christ from glory to glory, the Spirit is accomplishing his role in the process to conform us to the image of God in Christ. Each member of the Godhead has its own role, its own function, 
they do these separately, but they are all completely in one accord in what they do. And uh, to understand that more this week, the Trinity, we'll do that on Sunday, and it's, uh, I think, the third of our doctrine sermons. And I typed the last one this past Monday. We're only going to stick to 10, and they're all dealing with basically the same general thoughts. It's a, a short series, but it's something that hopefully will help some people that may have questions on one thing or another. But this week will be on the Trinity. Life application, to know God, you must know Jesus Christ. They're inseparable. You cannot know God without knowing Jesus Christ. To know Jesus Christ, you must... What? You must read your Bible. He's the only source that we have of Jesus Christ. I mean, he is only... You know, I, there are a couple of uh, extra biblical references to him, but that would be no different than having an extra biblical reference to somebody named um, Albert Schmier in uh, 1272, you know, in England. You just read it, it's a name, and there's nothing other than maybe a line or two about him. There's very little extra biblical writings about Jesus, and I'm talking about historical writings, not since then, but, you know, that he was an actual person. And you would have read those, and you would have thought nothing, okay? Without having this word, we cannot know Jesus Christ. That is not possible. And you cannot know God without know, knowing Jesus Christ. Therefore, you should know your Bible. Yes, read your Bible, know your Bible, love your Bible, cherish your Bible, carry it with you. Think about it, ponder it, meditate on it, and on and on and on. If you claim Jesus while circumventing the Bible, then how do you know that you're not following a false Christ? Read your Bible. Okay, we're in chapter four now. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. In the previous chapter, Paul noted that he and the apostles were ministers of the new covenant, that it was a ministry of the Spirit. That was first, um, the new covenant was verse 3-6, that it was a ministry of the Spirit is verse 3-8, and that it was a ministry of righteousness. That was verse 3-9. This is the ministry that he is speaking of. Everything about it is superior to that of the Old Covenant, which was received by Moses. This ministry, as he explained, is one of revealing the surpassing glory of God that will not fade away. However, his next words show that he is not bragging about the marvelous honor that has been bestowed upon them. Rather, in the reception of the ministry, mercy had been bestowed. As fallen men, they were inherently unworthy of the position and the status that they now bore. Paul alludes to this in the book of 1 Timothy. He says, let me take you there. 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says in verse 12. And I thank Jesus Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me, yes, into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the mercy poured out on him and the others, they were enabled to not lose heart. On several occasions, Paul's, Paul speaks of standing strong in the faith, and he encourages others to act in a likewise manner. One example of this is found in Galatians chapter 6, where he says, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. The term lose heart implies being worn out or wearied to the point that one is no longer effective. But Paul knew that with the reception of God's mercy came the inner strength to endure the challenges that came with the ministry. 
Two other instances of the use of this word by Paul are found in Ephesians 3.13 and 2 Thessalonians 3.13. If you want to look at that, go ahead. And uh, I know that's true because on Sunday, I left here on Thursday night. I was sick, I, or I wasn't sick yet, but I was not wondering why I wasn't feeling so hot. And by Friday, I was sick, and, and Saturday, I was miserable. And Sunday, I didn't know if I'd make it through church or not, but we, the Lord gives strength. He got me through it. I got the uh, video work done. And uh, normally I get all kinds of other stuff done that I can on Sunday. As soon as I was done with what I needed to do, that was off. I, I was done, cooked. But the Lord gives strength, and he, he will get you through the things that you need to do. If it is uh, something he wants done, it will get done. I absolutely assure you of that. But then I started getting better, and the next day I heard that Sergio was getting bad, and I just, oh, you poor guy, you know, because all I had was just a cold. It wasn't anything bad, but this guy's got the flu, and the doctor's got the flu, and uh, one more prayer. Jim is traveling. We want to make sure we think about him when we close in prayer as well. Um, he'll be traveling next week, too, so uh, the term to lose heart, I said that. Paul was constantly encouraging those who had been saved, knowing that like him, they had been given everything necessary to continue their walk of faith right to the end. And life application here, if God has saved you, then he has a purpose for you in his church. If he has a purpose for you in his church, then he has also enabled you to meet that purpose. Don't shrink back, don't shrink back from the honor bestowed upon you, but use it to its fullest to his glory. 4-2. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Building upon the thought of this ministry, which he had mentioned in verse 1, Paul acknowledges the purity of it. The word but is given as a contrast to having received mercy. They had received mercy, but they had once needed it, and based on the granting of that, they, meaning him and the apostles, have renounced the hidden things of shame, as he says. Charges had been leveled against him for various reasons, and certain others had been slandered in one way or another as well. But those were mere words without truth. Rather than speaking of things which are inappropriate, the speech of the apostles was pure and pointed to holiness, not illicit behavior. And not only did he conduct his speech in this manner, but he encouraged it to others as well. That's found in the book of Ephesians, where in chapter 5 it says this, For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Further, their conduct was not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully. The word Paul uses here for craftiness indicates crafty behavior, unscrupulous cunning that stops at nothing to achieve a selfish goal. In contrast to such an attitude, his life, doctrine, and intent for sharing the gospel was open and had only the best of others in mind. There was nothing but good intent and honesty in his conduct. He proved this by working with his own hands to sustain himself rather than peddling the word of God for profit. And this is exactly what he means by the use of the word translated as deceitfully. It is a word used only here in the New Testament, and it gives the idea of to ensnare and then to corrupt. It's used of adulterating gold or wine or something else. That's Vincent's word study says that. If someone were to take something of value and water it down for 
water it down by mixing in something of a lesser value, they would be acting in this manner. But Paul held the word of God in the highest reverence and refused to budge an inch on its proper presentation. Uh, I was listening to a Billy Graham crusade years and years ago, and he said that when he was young, times were tough. They were on a farm, and he said, my dad was a milk farmer. Then he said that his father knew that the other milk farmers were watering down the milk. He knew it. He said, but he would not do that. He said, if I can't make as much money as I can, as they can, if I can't compete with them, I am not going to do this dishonest thing. And it was a moral lesson for Billy Graham. And, you know, you see your father doing something like that in integrity, it's going to transfer to you. And so uh, that was just one of the things popped into my mind while I was just reading this here. Instead of acting in such a disgraceful way, he says that they had conducted themselves as he says, by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, they understood what they did was in the sight of God, and therefore they purposed always to act with this in mind. At the end of the day, their conscience was clean from anything that would be considered dishonest or disreputable. If only all of God's ministers would act in such a forthright manner today. I've got one minister from Africa that uh, he's in the prophecy update unless he gets preempted by something else for Sunday and he's a guy that wasn't acting in that manner just a little blurb about him but you know you, you see these people that do these things and the, the way that they act and the way that they conduct themselves and the name they're supposed to be bearing you think of that I'm supposed to be bearing the name of Christ and I do something that's so obviously blatantly horrifying but some people as Paul says their consciences are seared and Life application, the Bible is God's word. It is not ours. When we share it, we are to hold it in the highest reverence that it deserves, knowing that the source holds it as his chosen means of relaying the truth about himself to us. Further, when we share it, it is in his presence. Therefore, we must remember that he knows our treatment of it and will hold us accountable for how we present it. You think about that. This is what God has given us to transmit his will and his meaning and his purpose to the people of the world. And so it's a reflection of him. And then we're teaching it right in his presence because he is everywhere. Just think of the consequences for somebody that just flippantly disregards this word. It, you know, it doesn't matter. It just, it's just disturbing to see how people treat the word sometimes. Verse 4, 3. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The previous verse spoke of the hidden things of shame, which Paul and the apostles had renounced. Instead, he spoke of the manifestation of the truth, which is found in the gospel message. He now writes words which are intended to correct any perceived contradiction in saying that it is the manifestation of the truth, then how can it be veiled to some? A manifestation implies something that is open and available to all. But there are some who haven't received it because, as Paul says, they are perishing. As he notes, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Therefore, there is no contradiction in his words. People must be willing to accept that Jesus is the explanation for and fulfillment of all of Scripture. If they fail to accept this, then, as Paul says, the veil remains. That's what he's speaking of, as he noted back in the previous chapter. The result for such people is that they are perishing. But there is a note of hope even in his words. He uses a present participle for the word perishing, rather than a past participle. 
In other words, he doesn't say to those who have perished. Because of this, it does not exclude hope of the person turning to the Lord and having the veil lifted. So keep praying for your Jewish friends. Keep praying for your family. Keep praying for those that uh, need to hear the truth. And while I'm saying that, I had this covered up because I had some prayer requests. And I need to add in, um, I got a couple more people to our list that people want to pray for that lost Trent uh, has asked for his father, Todd, and Stephen has asked for his brother, Thomas. And if somebody, I, I think there was a third person I said I would add to this list, and I was sick this week, and I said, I'll write that down, and I, maybe I was dreaming this. So if I missed a person adding to that list, I want to apologize and have you email me again. I looked, and those are the only two that I could find. But when I was laying there in bed thinking, I'm sure I've forgotten somebody's list, and I don't want to forget that. So uh, we'll continue to pray for the people on this list as we go. Um, let's see here. I don't even know where I was now. Yes, there it is. Um, no, what verse are we in? We're in verse 3, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, oh, yeah, the gospel is the manifestation of the truth. It is available to any who will but receive it, even until their dying breath. Albert Barnes gives a lovely set of examples of comparison for us to consider. This is Albert Barnes's words. It is not the fault of the sun when people shut their eyes and will not see it. It is not the fault of a running stream or a bubbling fountain if people will not drink of it, but rather choose to die of thirst. The gospel does not obscure and conceal its own glory any more than the sun does. It is in itself a clear and full revelation of God and his grace, and that glory is adapted to shed light upon the benighted minds of people. Well said, Albert Barnes. Life application. Minds are easily dulled and we tend to gravitate towards those things which we prefer, regardless if they are right or wrong. The gospel sets us free from this, and yet, until we come to it, the perception is that we will lose all of the things that we like in the process. Instead, when we come to Christ, we are enabled to appreciate the things in their proper perspective. As we grow closer to him through his word, what is right becomes increasingly desirable, and that which is wrong becomes increasingly undesirable. Truly, a veil is lifted in Christ. And I can testify to that 100% as having happened to me. You know, when, before I met the Lord and when I met the Lord, I thought I got to give up all these things that I love. And I find out the things that I love were a lot of more things that I have no desire for in the world now. Or the things that I loved improperly, I now love 10 times more, right? I'm more grateful for them. I'm more appreciative of them. But you just don't know that until the veil gets lifted and you see the world in its proper moral perspective. And once you have that, everything falls into its right place. Verse four, I'll go back and read three again so you can see what's going on. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Verse four, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. The who's of this verse are those who are perishing, of the previous verse. Those who have not received the gospel of Christ are perishing. And the reason for this is that their minds, that their minds, yes, the God of this age has blinded. Spiritual darkness is a pall, which is found in all people born of man. Sin, sin is an inherited trait, and those who have sinned, and all of them have, are under the power of the devil. Here he is termed the God of this age. 
This is the only time that this phrase is used of him, but it corresponds with other such names for him in the Bible, such as the ruler of this world, which is John 14, 30, the prince of the power of the air, which is Ephesians 2, 2, and the wicked one, 1 John 5, 19. Now, I'll stop right there, and I'll say that uh, I, I said there that um, those who have not received the gospel are perishing and that they have a spiritual pall over them, which is found in all people. And I know that this is true. I know it's 100% true because... I, after I met the Lord, or after I came fully to the Lord, and I started attending the church, where I, it was just a church where my children went to school, and they had a church co-located with it, and so I started going there, and a couple of the people came up to me, and uh, this is, I don't know, maybe a year or so after I had met the Lord, and they said, well, well, you have changed since we came and visited you. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, when we came and visited you and talk about Jesus. And I said, you never came to my house. And they described everything in the yard. They said that they described the day. I, they had met with me, wanted to give me the gospel, and I had zero recollection of that. Zero. There, talk about a spiritual Paul. I had absolutely no recollection of that at all. And I, I, they, they were floored that I couldn't remember it. There, I guess there were three of them, and we went out and sat in the backyard and talked. I have no recollection of that at all. You talk about a spiritual Paul, it is there. These terms, among others, give us varied descriptions of the devil so that we can see his sphere of influence, meaning all the descriptions, the rule of this world, the prince of the power of the air, etc. They're given so we can see his sphere of influence and the characteristics which define him. In this verse, Paul shows that he is in control of the lost during this age until Christ is finished with his complete plan of redemption found in the dispensational model. Eventually, he will be cast into the lake of fire, good news for us, and a new age will come to pass. That is found in Revelation 20, verse 10. However, during this age, he has blinded the eyes of those who do not believe. The tense of the Greek for has blinded is an aorist indicative active. This means that he has blinded man in the past, which occurred at the fall of man, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the blindness continues in the present. In other words, he has blinded the world, but the world can come to see the light through Jesus Christ. Until they do, they remain blind. Jesus alluded to it in John chapter 9. Let me take you there and we'll take a look at what Jesus said in John 9. Let's see here, verse 31. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. But, I'm sorry, verse 39, and Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who, may, who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. The devil has done this, as Paul says, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Though this is speaking of all who are in Adam, Paul has specifically been speaking of the veil, which is over the eyes of the Jews who have failed to see Christ revealed in Scripture. He's giving an explanation of why this is so. The word he uses for light here is photismas. It is a special word which is used only here and then again in verse 6. Charles Ellicott notes that the word signifies not merely a purpose, but a result. To understand this, we can think of a person with blinded eyes. When he turns his face to the sun, there's no perception of the sun at all. 
Not only does he not see the light, but he cannot see the light. The intent of the scriptures is to illuminate the glory of Christ. However, the Jews cannot see this because they have been blinded. God knew that this would occur, and thus the dispensation of grace, which is the church age, was introduced during Israel's time of blindness, which is Romans 9 through 11, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Instead of seeing Christ, who is the image of God, they see only darkness. Finally, the word for shine here is agatso. It is only used here in the New Testament, and it indicates to shine forth. Christ radiates from the Bible, literally. He radiates from the Bible just as the sun shines forth at dawn, which is where the root of this word comes from. Paul's use of this word is described by the Bible scholar Charles Ellicott, where he says it stands as an intermediate between the object and the shadow, far plainer than the latter, yet not identical with the former, however adequately representing it. In other words, Scripture is not the Lord, but it accurately represents him. Thus, his radiance shines forth from it. However, in the eyes which are blinded, there can be no shining forth of this beautiful radiance. I would qualify what Charles Ellicott says there. It is a reflection of the Lord because he has spoken it out. And because he has spoken it out, it contains everything that is necessary to understand him of what he wants us to understand. It is a reflection of him. It cannot change because when God speaks, God speaks out of who he is. He is the God that does not change. And when I say God speaks, that doesn't mean that he literally speaks out because that would show a change in God. Something is happening in the stream of time. But his word reflects who he is. He is unchanging. His word is unchanging. He is immutable. His word must be immutable. So we need to keep that in our minds is that when we read the Bible, it is something that reflects who he is. And it is as if it is shining forth him. It isn't the Lord, but it is a mirror representation of his intent for us to understand him. Okay, life application. If you wonder why someone hasn't come to Christ, this verse may adequately describe their situation. They have been blinded by the devil and they cannot see him in scripture, meaning Christ in scripture. However, through prayer, we have a weapon to overcome this blindness. So never stop praying for the lost. It's important to do so. If you think your prayers aren't being heard, they are. You're in Christ. He is our mediator. He's the one that brings access to the throne of God. And so he is hearing our prayers and you just have to keep it up. You have to keep praying for these people because the Lord will respond according to his wisdom. Verse 4, 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Paul is continually directing or redirecting his readers to Jesus and away from himself. However, he often uses himself and or those with him in the conversation. It is a natural thing to do, but charges of either egotism or personal gain could arise if, if, if his words were misapplied or misinterpreted. And because of this, he occasionally reminds those to whom he is writing that Jesus, not he, is the center of his theology. You'll see him do this again and again in his writings. He has been discussing the veil which covered the eyes of those who had rejected Jesus as the focus of Scripture. Then he noted in the previous verse that the God of this age has blinded the minds of these unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now his words show that the light of the gospel 
is not ourselves. There's no personal boasting. Instead, the light of which he writes is Jesus Christ as Lord. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, let me take you back there. He said, oh gosh. There we are. 1 Corinthians 2, 2. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then in 2.17, he said this. We're on the same page. For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as sincerity. But as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. These and other reminders are brought into his letters to demonstrate clearly that it is all about Jesus. Personal references are simply life experiences that help make the message of Jesus more understandable, more personable, and etc. They are not intended to draw the masses to himself, but to Jesus Christ. To further confirm this, he says that not only do they proclaim Jesus, but ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul always attempted to exalt Jesus at every chance, and he diminished himself and the other apostles to their rightful position of being doulos, or literally slaves to those they minister to. If they were slaves to the Corinthians, then how could they be egoists or braggarts? Rather, they had only the exaltation of Jesus Christ as their main goal and intent. Life application. When in church, what is the preacher focusing on most? Pay attention to his words, especially those in the sermon. Are they centered on you? If so, he may be using platitudes to schmooze you. Are they centered on him? If so, he probably has an ego problem that he wants filled with your adoration. Are they centered on a general God without specificity on Christ? Then his theology is probably severely lacking. Anybody know who I'm thinking of when I say that? Big, big congregation out in Texas. That's all you ever hear is God. Once you know, and I don't listen to the guy, but I've heard this a few times that I've, somebody's, would you listen to this clip and give me an evaluation of it? It's God, God, God. He never says Jesus. Never. If he does, he might say it once or twice during a sermon at all. I don't know, but his priorities are way wrong. They're way wrong. Okay. Are they, because everybody speaks about God. If you go into a Muslim mosque, they're going to speak about God. If you go into a Hindu temple, they're going to speak about God. If you go to a uh, Shinto temple in Okinawa, they're going to speak about God. I don't care where you go in this world, people are going to speak about God. What does God mean? And if you're just going to say God, you're not giving any focus at all on what the intent of Scripture is, which is to see God in the person of Jesus Christ. All right. Are they centered on the Holy Spirit? Then not only is his theology severely lacking, he has probably purposely directed your attention away from what is proper and onto himself. This is because he is most likely claiming to be a vehicle rather than the Bible by which the Holy Spirit reveals truth. Bad juju there. Or are they centered on Christ? If they are, then they are properly directed words proclaiming what the intent of Scripture truly is. The Holy Spirit gave us the words of Scripture. I do not believe in extra-biblical revelation. I'm sorry, I know people disagree with that, but I don't believe in it. God has spoken. There's no need. What more does a person need than this to know Jesus and to know what God expects for us. When a preacher stands in the pulpit and he says, God gave me a word today, unless it's a word from this word, I'd get up and leave personally, but you know, do whatever you want, whatever church you attend. But uh, I, I, there's no need for it. 
And if somebody says, well, there's Holy Spirit, Spirit power in this church today, it ought to be because he's reading the Word of God and speaking about it. All right? The, the focus in the Bible is on Jesus. And then the members of the Godhead all focus together to come to the point where we understand what God has done in Jesus. The Spirit speaks of Jesus, God the Father, you know, this is my beloved Son. Hear him, right? Out on the Mount of Transfiguration, he wants us to understand who he is through his Son. All right? Verse 4, 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There you go. Perfect example of what I was just saying. Following Paul's order of thought, we can see how he is weaving together his words in order to best reveal what God has done in the giving of the gospel. In the previous verse, he seemed to stop his train of thought and redirect his readers to the understanding that everything he is conveying is not about himself, but it's about Jesus Christ. And the verse just before that, he wrote, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. We've gone through, what, four verses in a row now where the entire focus is on Jesus. He keeps bringing us back to this central theme. He now pens verse 6, which is given to contrast what was seen in verse 4. The God of this age is now contrasted with the God, meaning the true God. Those who have rejected Christ have their minds blinded. However, the true God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has once again revealed light. The creation account in Genesis 1 is being equated with the new creation in Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Let me take you there. It says right here, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What occurs when the veil is lifted is as marvelous as the original light shining out of darkness. And the intent for this is that God has shown in our hearts, Paul's words, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There is a definite point of time in the life of Paul, in the life of each of the apostles, and in the life of every person who comes to Christ at the time of their conversion when the light of what God has done through the work of Jesus Christ shines in our hearts. At that wondrous moment, the veil is lifted and Christ is revealed. However, there is another contrast with these words. The glory of the law was a reflection from Moses' face to the people of Israel. However, the glory of Jesus is not a reflection, but the transmission of God's glory. This is seen, for example, in Hebrews chapter 1. Let me take you there. Think of what I just said. He's not reflecting God's glory. He's transmitting God's glory. God, who at various times and in various ways in times past to the fathers, spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, who he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, here it is, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So there you go. The 
brightness of God is being transmitted right through Jesus Christ. He is the brightness of God. Having said that, just so you get the theology straight, I said this during the uh, Acts teachings, and that was a long time ago, is that God does not have a right hand. Just so you know, that means the position of authority. He is at the authority of God. It doesn't. God doesn't have parts. He's not sitting there on a throne somewhere. God is, okay? And Jesus is at the right hand of God, meaning at the position of the authority of God. That's confirmed in lots and lots of verses. Burke, give me one of them. I'm putting him on the spot. I'm thinking of Matthew 28, verse... Come on, Burke. There you go. Let me, let me go there. That's just one of them, but it's a good place to go. It says there, actually, I'll start in 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. He is at the right hand of power. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. He's the author of Scripture, and he is the author of the commandment. And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Amen. There you go. Wonderful stuff. All authority belongs to him. He is at the position of authority, which is signified in Scripture by the right hand. That's an anthropomorphic uh, expression there. In Paul's words of Hebrews 1, or here, we find the second and final use of the word phlotismos, or light, in Scripture. He used it in verse 4, which I cited to you, and now he uses it again to show that in seeing Christ, we are seeing the full illumination and splendor of God who is the source of all light. In other words, Jesus is the one who reveals our heavenly Father. As he said in John 14:9. Okay, let me take you there, John 14:9. Let me give you 5:27. 5:27 what? And he gave him authority and execute judgment because he is the son of God. John 5. Okay, John 5, 7. Okay, I wasn't sure which uh, uh, which book you were talking about, and so that's the authority, right? Yeah. Okay, and then 14, 9, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. That's right, so how can you say, show us the Father? It's pretty clear in Scripture what's going on there. The light came into the world at the spoken word of God, and Jesus is that spoken word. In him, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, and in him we have our eternal light and life. Life application. If you feel beaten up by the world, refresh yourself in the word. Pick up your Bible and remind yourself that God has it all under control. He has given us Jesus, and Jesus is fully sufficient to carry you through this world of darkness and into God's marvelous light. I feel so bad for people that don't have this word as their anchor and their stay when they have trouble in their life. I, I, I don't, you know, I don't remember what I did before I met the Lord, but I got to tell you, I don't want to go back to it. Whatever it was, I don't want to go back there. And the more times get difficult, the, Sergio emailed me today, and he said uh, we were goofing around while I was cleaning the uh, kitchen and the bathroom. And uh, he said, uh, I, uh, I got myself a big burger over at Chicago Burger over here. And I said, uh, I uh, took a picture of it. And I said, one more reason for you to feel bad because they're really good and he doesn't have one. <laughs> and uh, then uh, I, I consoled him a little bit. I said, it's really terrible. And uh, <laughs> then I said, it's, uh, 
it's so bad I'm going to have to eat the whole thing so nobody else eats this terrible burger. <laughs> so we're having fun. And then he said, uh, he said, I just am so miserable. But he said, I got more Bible reading done in the past day or so than I've. In other words, he's got, he can't get out of bed. He's stuck there. He's miserable. God slows but, us down sometimes. Yeah, God slows us down sometimes. And Sergio is taking advantage of it. He says, I've read all through this book and this book. And uh, he says, it's just wonderful. So here he is in absolute misery. And he's reading God's word. You know, it makes you want to cry that, that somebody would take their misery and turn it into something wonderful by reading the word. But he didn't get the burger. So, all right. And not that the burger is nearly as good as the word, but... Uh, he'll have an appetite for it. Yeah, <laughs> he'll have an appetite for it. That's right. And uh, uh, eventually, hopefully, he'll be back here again and he and Rhoda will get their burgers. If you haven't had a Chicago burger, right down, right over there, they're really good. I mean, you know, they got Chicago dogs, too, and everything else. It's a little hole in the wall, but boy, do they make good food. Anyway, we'll go on now. 4-7. Four, 4-7. Seven. Uh, four, seven. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Uh, anybody got a different translation, the NIV in front of them? No, no, not. I'm thinking of earthen jars of clay. I was thinking of, yes, the... Jars of clay, if you... Uh, treasuring clay jars. Treasuring clay jars, yes. Okay, earthen vessels is probably the closest uh, to the original, but the term jars of clay, if you know the band from yes. the 80s, Christian band, marvelous music. If you've never heard jars of clay, I recommend them. They may not be your style, but I could listen to them all day long. They do really marvelous music. Okay, Paul has been speaking of his ministry, which is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is a ministry which surpasses the reflected glory of the old covenant, which was written on stone. This light is written on the hearts of the believers. Paul, using this symbolism, says that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. There's a dual significance to these words. First, man was taken from the dust and formed into a living being. Therefore, by mixing in the right amount of water and then adding in God's animating breath, we have been formed into earthen vessels. We are fragile, and yet we are suited for various purposes, some noble, some ignoble. But we have all been fashioned by the Creator. This symbolism is found in the Old Testament, but a very good rendering of it is in Jeremiah 18. Let's go there. I, I wasn't going to, I don't have an underline, which means don't read it, but I'm going to go ahead and read it because it's, the yes, the potter with the wheel. Jeremiah 18. And he starts here in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, as seemed good to the potter. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with this with you as this potter, says the Lord. Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build it and plant it, if it is evil in my if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice then i will relent concerning the good with which i would said i would benefit it 
Now therefore speak to the men of Judah and say to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now every one from his evil ways and make your ways and your doings good. So there you go. Yes? Use that verse of him taking that vessel and forming it anew yeah. to backsliding Christians. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Backsliding Christians yeah. is a perfect example. That's exactly right. So, and that's what, you know, we are jars of clay. So that's an example from the Old Testament. I think I didn't underline it to read because it doesn't really pertain directly to this verse at hand, but it's still a good example of what you see there. The second significance is that of the habit of people to use earthen vessels, jars of clay, for storing valuables. This is seen throughout the Bible as well. A good example of this is the story of Elijah and the widow in 1 Kings 17, 8 through 15. 8 through 15. It was also known that kings, returning conquerors, and wealthy people would store gold, silver, and other valuables in such jars as well. Even the precious wine created by the Lord in John 2, 1 through 12 was kept in such clay jars. I think it's actually stone jars is what they're kept in, stone jars. Paul ties the two concepts together, humans being made of clay and being jars suitable for containing things, and real clay jars that are used for storing all sorts of things, valuable or of little value. To him, the treasure that he bore, which is the ministry of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, is the most valuable treasure of all. And yet, it is contained in a weak clay jar that has no value at all in comparison to what it contains. Think of that. The reason for this is that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us, Paul's words. The word translated as excellence is hyperbole. It literally means a throwing beyond, hence preeminence or excellence. Within the saved believer is something of exceeding value, far, far beyond the value of the container which holds it. Such is the nature of the grace of God. He is condescended to allow his weak, fragile creatures, think of our sick friends today, to share in his exceeding glory, and he has allowed us to speak of it to others. It radiates forth from the darkened vessel with a magnificence which completely overshadows its faults. Think of you being a, a jar with all kinds of faults, and yet God has allowed his spirit to dwell within you. Thus it is obvious that the glory is of God and not from us. Paul's words. Life application, the most marvelous and glorious thing that we possess is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is a possession that is not intended to be kept hidden away, but shared with all. As we open our jar of clay and allow it to come forth, the contents are never diminished. Instead, they continue to overflow. Therefore, there is no loss to us when we share it, but there is great gain for all who receive it. So, speak the word. Verse 4, 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. There's a lot going on in these few words as Paul's ideas were printed onto the parchment. The previous verse began with, but we have. The verb was present indicative. Now this verse has all of the clauses in a present participle form. Thus they are in apposition. We have, we are. Each of the articles in this verse represents inward conflicts, whereas each in the next verse will deal with external conflicts. 
Also, in each of these clauses, the idea is building upon the previous verse, which noted first the treasure in earthen vessels, and then the excellence of the power of God. The first deals with the fragility of the created, the second with the power of the creator. He is showing the superiority of the contents in the vessel, despite the weakness of the vessel itself. His first words, hard, or yes, his first words, hard pressed on every side, show their seeming inability to break away from that which is troubling them. And yet, because of God's power, they were not crushed, despite the pressures they were able to bear up. Further, he says they were perplexed. The word indicates an inability to find a way out of something. And yet, at the same time, they were not in despair. In these last two words, a paranomesia results. They are aporomenoi and exaporomenoi. It is as if Paul was temporarily tempted by a tasty treat of targeted tones in order to tantalize the ears of his readers. In an attempt to reproduce the original, one translator says, pressed but not oppressed. Paul is showing that by living through the power of God, they were, and thus we are, able to bear up under the turmoil and trouble that constantly came their way and comes our way. If we rely on our own physical makeup, we will surely only see defeat. But when we rely on the strength that is given by God, we will be able to bear up as the attacks come our way. As Paul says it elsewhere, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yes, Philippians 4.13. Life application, it's easy to read the words such as Philippians 4.13 and say, I will hold to this and trust in it. However, it's much harder to continue to trust those words when the difficulties come. This is why we must memorize them and repeat them to ourselves again and again and again. We do this so that when the difficulties do arrive, and they will, we will be prepared mentally to allow the strength of the Lord to take the lead. Otherwise, you're doing it on your own and you're not going to succeed. 4-9 here. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Paul continues with his contrasts, which began in the previous verse. Those previous contrasts were from internal struggles. These are from external ones. His imagery is as if a soldier in combat who is first persecuted, but not forsaken. The words have the intent of pursued, but not abandoned, as if they were soldiers being pursued by an enemy. Paul says that even in such a state, the Lord is with them. This follows along with Hebrews chapter 13, where it says this in verses 5 and 6. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And surely this imagery is appropriate because the state which Christians find themselves in is a true battle. Paul discusses this in detail in Ephesians chapter... Anybody? Ephesians chapter 6. Okay, Ephesians chapter 6, and then in verse 12 he says, remember the spiritual battle, Ephesians chapter 6, and in verse 12 he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Yes, 
The second contrast is that they were struck down, but not destroyed. This again is the imagery of a soldier whose life is spared despite being wounded. It could be even of wrestlers in a bout of mortal combat. When Jacob wrestled with the Lord in Genesis 32, the match continued without either letting up. And so in order to end the match, we read this. Let me take you back to Genesis 32. What a great story that is. Wow. I heard that just, uh, it wasn't too long ago on my audio Bible, and I was all excited about that. Genesis chapter 32. If I can ever get to that page. There we are, 35, 34, 31, and 32. And then we want to go to verse 25, and it says there, how did it end? It says, now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. So there you go, and that's how he got his name Israel. He strives with God, all right? And that's a double entendre. I've said it during several sermons, is when you hear the name Israel, you can think that Israel strives with God. They either strive with God for God, or they strive with God against God. But either way, Israel strives with God. And that's the intent of the name that was given to Jacob, and it's passed all the way down to this day with the modern people, and they are striving with God against God right now. And that's a very sad place to be, but we'll hope that that ends soon. Jacob was struck down, but he was not destroyed in the process. The Lord could have done so, but instead he humbled him and yet spared him. Paul shows that this is the state of the apostles as they strived to share the message of Christ. With their many struggles, both internal and external, they were able to press on because the Lord was there with them to ensure they would never falter or fail. Life application, the Bible says that the Lord will never leave his people and he will never forsake them. Paul was eventually martyred for his faith, as were almost every one of the apostles. Did the Lord break his promise? No. They have something that those who persecuted and killed them don't have. They have the assurance of eternal life because of their trust in Christ. Truly, what can man do to one who is saved by the blood of Christ? Now, I'll stop right there. Uh, a guy, and uh, I, I don't want to give the name without giving the uh, website, and I didn't think of it. He's just started a uh, YouTube channel, and uh, this just brought it to my mind, and I thought it would be a good reason for you all to think about self-protection and our state in this country, because some people don't want to hear about Second Amendment rights, and some people do, but it fits perfectly with what we just said here, is that, uh, you know, we all have a responsibility in this world. But in New Zealand, they've taken away the rights of the people. And everybody remembers what happened some time ago. Is that this guy live streamed on Facebook. It was, I, I think he said the total was 16 minutes of live streaming. He was driving to the mosque. He got to the mosque and he started shooting people. And that lasted for six full minutes. And they drove somewhere else to kill more people, shot people along the way. Okay. Six full minutes of shooting people in a mosque. This past month, somebody went into a church in Texas. And that lasted six seconds. Yeah. The man had a chance to shoot two people. He had a loaded shotgun that could shoot twice. He did. And a person stood up and took him out in one second. Five seconds in one second. And you think about the difference. All those people died in six minutes of shooting. Nobody could protect themselves because their rights have been taken away. Okay. In this country, we have an obligation to protect those people around us. That's our obligation because they need to hear the gospel. Some of them might not be saved. And I would rather give my life for an unsaved person than for a saved person. And that's just the way it is. So I would like you to consider that. If you disagree with that premise, tough. 
This is my Bible study. <laughs> and I believe in our rights as citizens in this nation to defend ourselves and the people, one that we love and the people that we are trying to evangelize. So there you go with that. I know that was kind of snarky, but that's okay. Um, 410. Let's see here. Uh, always carrying around about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. If somebody remembers to email me to get that guy some uh, new YouTube channel, I will give it to you. I'll say it next week if I remember. He did a great job, and he's going to start putting out just an analytical videos. He sits at a desk, and he talks about issues. He says the next one will be socialism. It was very well done, very professionally done, and uh, you know, I'd like to get uh, Linroy's videos out there. So anyway, in the previous two verses, Paul made four contrasting thoughts concerning difficulties faced by the apostles and yet overcome by the power of God in them. Continuing on in a similar vein, he says that they are always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. This is a reference to the sufferings and death of the Lord. The word for dying is necrosis. It means both the process of dying and the deadness of something which lacks any life at all. The only other use of it is in Romans 4.19 when speaking of the deadness of Sarah's womb. In their bodies, the apostles were always caring about this state. They were exposed to the constant threat of death and even experienced acts which could easily lead to death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we read this. 15 verse 30, he says, And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord I die daily. And in a great summary of his sufferings, which he endured, and the reason for them, he says to this, he says this to the people in Philippi. In Philippians 3, excuse me, verse 8, he says, Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I, I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. These references and numerous others show the constant threat of death which surrounded Paul and the other apostles. And yet they were willing to endure this, carrying the dying of the Lord with them so that the life of Jesus may be manifest, as he says, in our body. There are different opinions on what Paul is referring to here. It could be that he was showing through his life of dying that he lives through the power of Christ and thus he is an object lesson concerning the death and resurrection. It could be that the power of Christ, because he is resurrected, is seen in the apostles. They are a witness to the life of Jesus. Or it could be that Paul is simply speaking as being one who emulates Christ. As he is dying and will die just as Christ Jesus died, so he will live again as Christ lived again. Thus his life is patterned after the Lord having died in a weak physical frame, and yet to be raised to an immortal new frame. Whatever the intent of Paul's words truly is, he and the other apostles suffered for the name of Christ, both in death and in life. 
but to them, and therefore it should be to us, there was no loss but only gain. As he said way back in Romans chapter 5, let me take you there, Romans 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, yes, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. I'm telling you, it just makes your hair want to stand up. It doesn't make your hair want to stand up. It makes your hair stand up. <laughs> hair doesn't want anything. It just does what, what the instinct says. Life application. Christ died so that we could live. In proof that this is true, he now lives so that we are to not have fear in death. If we are in Christ, we have moved from death to life. Woohoo! The body may perish, but the hope of everlasting life is assured. Good news there, folks. Verse 11. We're just whipping through the verses today. For we who live are always delivered to the death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may may also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. There's a restatement and an expansion here upon the previous verse. Taken together, I'm going to go ahead and read them to you both so you can see it. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Paul has, in these two verses, mentioned Jesus four times by name. The repetition of the name, instead of using a pronoun, highlights the honor that he feels toward the Lord. In this verse, he says, For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. He could have said for his sake. He doesn't. The contrast between life and death is highlighted. The apostles lived for Christ telling others of him and sharing the good news everywhere. But during this, they were constantly subjected to the possibility of death. And eventually, a death for the sake of his name became a reality for most of them. In this life, in the face of death, the result was that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Here, Paul substitutes body of the previous verse for mortal flesh in this verse. This was done to highlight the corrupt nature of the body. Not yet being glorified, we are subject to pains, decay, and death, and yet it highlights the life of Jesus all the more poignantly. His divine nature is seen through our corruptible bodies, and the hope of the resurrection is seen in the fact that we are dying. As the Bible scholar Alford says, God exhibits death, D-E-A-T-H, in the living so that he may also exhibit life, L-I-F-E, in the dying. Life application, if you know someone with a terminal disease who exalts Christ Jesus through their affliction, then this verse may be more understandable. Jesus is manifest through the ending of their life, and their death is the assurance of the fellowship with God through it all, including the coming resurrection unto eternal life. Now, I meant to do this as what happens when I get emails when I'm sick is I uh, I uh, set it aside and I meant to uh, print something off and read it to you. And I'll give you the substance of it. And if I can remember to go home and get it, I will print it off and I'll read you some of them because it was so marvelous. <coughs> My friend in Australia, she's going through her ancestry and trying to figure out where she came from and all this kind of stuff. And one of the things that she did while she was going through ancestral records is there was, uh, she sent me what was written on several tombstones of people in an area that she came from. And these tombstones were 
marvelous reflections of these people's lives to Christ. It was amazing to read what was written in stone about these people and their epitaphs about Jesus and about their sureness. And I think, you know, I bet you we don't see that much on tombstones anymore. I don't, I don't, haven't been to a graveyard in a while, but I don't think people exalt Christ the way they did on these tombstones. It was marvelous. It was so wonderful to read that I thought I need to print that off and I need to bring it, bring it in so that you can at least see how these people lived their lives until their death. And then it was recorded what their lives were lived like in their death. It's exactly what we're talking about here, but it was just so beautiful. And I, I, that's what happens when you get sick. Your, your brain goes foggy and it happens to me every day anyway. It's just more, more so when I got a cold, but thank goodness that's over. It only lasted three days and it was done. All right, here we go. Uh, 412. Uh, marvelous stuff, though, on those tombstones. If you read them, you'd almost be in tears at the, the, the faith that was exhibited just in the statements that were made. Okay, verse 12. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Paul has been speaking of the sufferings that he and the other apostles endured for the sake of the gospel. He went so far as to show the contrast between their lives, which were fraught with death, and the life of Christ working through them, as they were, as he says, delivered to death for Jesus' sake. The result was that the life of Jesus, therefore, would be manifest in them. This then explains his words to the Corinthians to us now. He says, so death is working in us which refers to their state as apostles. But for the Corinthians, it meant life in you. In other words, you reap the spiritual benefits, spiritual life through the gospel of our physical struggles, physical death because of the gospel. If still not understood, we could give a purely physical example from everyday life. Firemen are constantly exposed to death as they enter buildings which have become blazing torrents of fire. And yet those inside reap the chance of continued life because of their exposure to death. Such was the life of the apostle. They constantly faced death in order to carry the message of life. Everybody got the symbolism? There you go. Life application. The word of God has come to us at a very high cost. Not only the apostles, but a string of other faithful people has been willing to put themselves at great risk, even death sentences, to ensure that the precious word continues to go forth. Today, people still risk death by taking the Bible to others in places where it is banned. Let us never fail to appreciate the high cost which has brought this precious word to the people of the world. It makes me think of whether you like him or not is irrelevant. What he did was noble as Martin Luther when he was standing there at the, the trial. And uh, they said, are you willing to recount? And he says, here I stand and I can do no other. You know, and he says, I'm going to stand on this word of God and you do whatever you want to me. And then he was secreted away on the way out of there. And uh, he was certain that he was going to die. But, you know, the Lord had a different purpose and he was able to translate the Bible into German in a, uh, uh, you know, a, a safe house somewhere, and the word got out there, and it's been getting out by people like that all along, people willing to risk death to make a stand for the word of God. 413, let's see here. Ah, don't want to read that, that's 513. 413, and since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, and therefore I spoke. We also believe, and therefore speak. Paul's words here, and since we have the same spirit of faith, are speaking of the same type of faith as his readers. 
He's been showing that the position of the apostles faced because of their faith, such as being hard-pressed yet not crushed, perplexed but not in spare, uh, despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, and so on, is one based on faith. Further, the purpose of such desperate straits was for the sake of instilling faith in their Christian converts. It is this same spirit of faith that Paul is referring to. Whether it is faith in distress or faith resulting from that distress, they shared in a unity of faith in the same message. Therefore, because the faith of the apostles was for the same end goal as for that of those they shared it with, Paul cites the reason, remembering that the reason is what resulted in their many distresses. That reason is found in the Old Testament Psalms. Paul says, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. This is a line from the 116th Psalm. It speaks of a person who is in great trials and afflictions, just as the apostles were. And yet he knew that God would hear his supplications despite those afflictions. He had not been abandoned by the Lord, but rather the trials were simply allowed by the Lord for his purposes. Likewise, the trials and afflictions of the apostles were not something which demonstrated that the Lord didn't care about them or their message. Rather, it demonstrated exactly the opposite. These hardships were ordained by the Lord. And because of this, he says, we also believe and therefore speak. Knowing that these difficulties were a part of the Lord's purposes for them, they were all the more emboldened to speak. Their faith in Christ was unshaken by them. Read these first 10 verses. Read the first 10 verses of the 116th Psalm and mentally put the apostles in place of the author and you will see what Paul is proclaiming. Let me take you there. Psalm 116. We do the first uh, 10 verses or so. It says, think of the apostles. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. The pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my ears from tears and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. I'll go on. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Life application. Like Job's friends, people in the world tend to look at hardships, difficulties, trials, and losses as a meaning, as meaning a person is not in God's favor. The, recipro the reciprocal is then believed to be true. 
when things are going well and all is peachy, it is believed that God must really favor that person. You can turn on Christian TV and see that all the time. This is shallow at best and hardly conveys the message of the Bible. Often hardships are used by the Lord for his purposes, and they have nothing to do with his disfavor. Through good times and bad, be sure to praise the Lord and look for his hand in what is resulting from the situation as it unfolds. You think of Paul. He was in prison for a couple of years, and eventually he uh, got uh, taken before the king, and uh, who was the other person, uh, the new pro-council Felix and king uh, whatever, and he was standing there. He, yes. It's what? Yeah, Beatrice and uh, Felix and uh, anyway, all of them. And what did he do? He's standing there in chains and he's giving them the gospel. He's saying, this is why I'm in these chains. And they said, well, you know, if you didn't, uh, what did he say? Something in Paul's response to him was, I wish that you were other than these chains, just like me. I'm freer than you are, even though I've got these chains on. He was willing to go through all of that affliction and still maintain a positive. Uh, I know I blew that completely. Go back to the book of Acts and read it, and you'll get the, the uh, sense of what I said much better. But that's exactly what Paul was going through at that time. And yet he told them, I'd like you to be like me, except for these chains. This is the freedom of Christ. 414. I, yeah, no, we don't have time for any more. We better not because I'll go over Let me see how long this is. And they said, you almost persuade me. You almost persuade me. You know what? But that we talked about that when we went through Acts. Is that can be taken in about 17 different ways based on how you uh, perceive what's being said. You almost persuade me. Or it, 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 we'll go through it sometime. Just the different ways that those few words can be perceived is astonishing. It, you know, it just it depends on. Same thing with when he said, you whitewashed wall, um, you dare. Uh, and then he said, I did not know that it was God's high priest. That can be taken in like 20 different ways. It could be sarcasm. It could be, you know, truthfully saying I didn't know. It could be, you know, I, it, there's many ways that those like verses. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and pray because we are out of time. And I don't want to uh, go over an hour and a half because when I do, that causes difficulty for the guy that puts up the webcams, uh, podcasts, whatever. So here we go. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for the chance to meet and to get into your beautiful word. What just a marvelous gift it is that we can know that we have the exact same things going on in our own lives that are being talked about 2,000 years ago. And the same Lord is in control of the same things all this time faithfully tending to his people as a shepherd does. And we thank you for that, that tender care that you give to us and the surety that we have because your word is written and it's been carried down all these years faithfully to us. Thank you for that. And Lord, you know the list of the people that are not yet saved, that uh, people have asked for those people to uh, be lifted up and we lift them up right now, each one of those people. And we also lift up all of the people that we mentioned that are having sickness and trials and distress in their lives right now. We would ask that you would be with them and help them through their uh, their time of difficulty. And regardless of what happens, we carry about in us life because of Jesus. And so we are assured of that no matter what happens. But we certainly would pray for comfort and ease during their time of trial. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Is there anything in the Bible that tells where Paul was from? Uh, Paul, yes. Tarsus of Cilicia. Cilicia. I don't know exactly how you... Uh, Tarsus. T-A-R-S-U-S is where uh, he's from. A Muslim just said right. that, that that was... Uh, was uh...